Jennifer is the Director of Intelligence Planning at the Institute for the Study of War. She's responsible for shaping and overseeing the development of ISW's detailed plans and recommendations on how to achieve U.S. objectives against enemies and adversaries in conflict zones. In 2015, she participated in the multi-week assessment mission in the Middle East, focused on the conflicts in Iraq and Syria. This was at the invitation of senior U.S. Army commanders. She has also designed and led briefings and simulation exercises for various U.S. military units deploying overseas. She's a graduate of ISW's Hertog War Studies Program and was ISW's first Evans Hansen Fellow. The Evans Hansen Fellowship draws from the outstanding alumni of the ISW Hertog War Studies Program, which helps develop the next generation of national security leaders. Jennifer, welcome to the National Security Law Institute. We look forward to hearing what you have to say, okay? Thanks so much. It's a pleasure to be back here. Um, any excuse to get out of the swamp is always welcome, um, but especially looking forward to the conversation today. Uh, I do have some opening remarks that I'm going to offer, but I really hope that this will be a discussion. So I don't plan to speak for too long, um, and I welcome questions, comments uh, as I go here. So don't, don't hesitate. Um, to speak up. I thought I would start by framing um, how I understand the Trump administration's national security policy in the wider Middle East and how it differs from the policy under the Obama administration, um, because I think it's a helpful framing in order to understand why the momentum in these conflicts remains as it does and the likely trajectory of both wars, which actually are merging um, in, in Syria and then on the Iraqi side of the border. So the two main departures that the Trump administration has made from the Obama administration's policy is, of course, the decision to withdraw from the JCPOA, the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, also known as the Iranian nuclear deal. Um, we can come back to this in a minute, but I do think that this is a significant um, policy decision, of course, from the administration, and it was the product of a long strategy review of the U.S. approach to dealing with this Iranian regime. Um, so that is a major change on a strategic level. Um, it has obvious implications for the implementation of sanctions with the possibility that the U.S. will begin actually to enforce secondary sanctions. Um, and again, we can come back to that in a minute. The second main departure that President Trump has made is actually his chemical weapon strikes inside, or his strikes in response to the use of chemical weapons um, in Syria. And I'd like to spend a minute on that because I think it is both actually highly significant that he undertook those actions, but actually marginal um, in many respects in terms of the effect it actually has on this battle space and the trends within this region. Um, so President Trump, of course, authorized now on two separate occasions uh, limited strikes in retaliation for the Assad regime in Syria's use of chemical weapons against civilian populations. In both instances, the Assad regime used a nerve agent um, against a strategic military target um, in an effort to either block a rebel and al-Qaeda offensive, which was the case in early 2017 when President Trump first authorized a strike, or in the case of the strike earlier this year, uh, the Assad regime used chemical weapons actually in order to force the submission of a rebelling town on the outskirts of the capital that it would have taken the Assad regime a lot of time and a lot of casualties to seize by force. So in both instances, the Assad regime used this kind of munition for military gain on the battlefield and triggered an American response. 
Now, the second series of U.S. strikes was significant because it actually was a wider international response. The French and the British um, armed forces both participated in that engagement, which did send, I think, a powerful signal um, that not just the U.S., but the wider uh, West will not tolerate this kind of uh, behavior inside of Syria. So that strike is, those strikes are important because they do set a precedent. Um, I hate to use the word red line, given the context of that word uh, or that phrase inside of Syria, but it does set an important um, boundary for what the United States will tolerate internationally. Um, it is, of course, significant in the Syrian context that somebody has finally done something to stand up to Assad, um, in my view. However, this really wasn't about Syria, from what we can tell from the president's decision-making. This was about the international norms against the use of chemical weapons, which is important for the United States to establish and to reaffirm, given um, the willingness of actors like Russia um, and, you know, potentially the North Koreans to use this kind <coughs> of munition um, on battlefields elsewhere. So the president took a strong stance on this. However, I do not actually assess that the strikes that the president conducted inside of Syria will be sufficient to deter Assad from doing this again. So it was important internationally, but I am doubtful actually that it will have the intended effect, which was both to deter Assad from using chemical weapons and to degrade his capability to do so. The reason I don't think it was sufficient to deter Assad is first and foremost because this is a man whose slogan is Assad or we burn the country. There is no outcome other than his survival that he is willing to tolerate. And the cost we imposed on him was, was, was limited strikes against three chemical weapons facilities, which is a price he is willing to pay for securing his capital city. So I do expect that if Assad faces another military requirement, in his view, to use chemical weapons, he will do so. Um, second, I think that these strikes are unlikely actually to degrade the regime's chemical weapons capability because, of course, we only struck three targets. Um, the Assad regime's infrastructure for the production um, and use of chemical weapons is much larger than those three structures. Um, Assad gets state support for that program. We know, for example, the North Koreans actually are supporting the development and the testing of new types of chemical weapons, potentially inside of Syria. Um, so we did not actually meaningfully degrade his capability to conduct this attack, nor do I think we deterred him. So it's an example of a seemingly very significant sort of tectonic shift in the, in the new administration strategy in the Middle East that is important in some respects, but doesn't actually change the overall trajectory of the conflict. And I think that's important framing to keep in mind. Um, so with those two pillars, the overall momentum of the system actually continues to favor not just the Assad regime, but the Russians and the Iranians in the region, despite the decision to withdraw from the JCPOA and despite new sanctions that we have imposed on the Russians. And part of that is because the sum total of what the U.S. is actually doing on the ground remains limited to the counter-ISIS mission. Um, under the Obama administration, the counter-ISIS mission was sort of the funnel through which all other, other strategy uh, was nested. Counter-ISIS was our number one priority in the region, and all other American considerations came second, which had implications for how we were designing and phasing policies and military operations. There's a recognition, for example, that Iran's buildup across the region is a problem, even under the Obama administration. However, the strategic approach that the United States took was to defeat ISIS first and then afterwards to consider how and whether we need to constrain the Iranians. 
And that framing actually does remain true today. We are still focused on the counter-ISIS fight. Now, the president has stated publicly that he intends to withdraw U.S. troops from Syria to declare victory against ISIS and come home. He took a lot of criticism for that, most of which I do think is valid, and I'll get into to why I think we can't leave in a minute. But I do think that it's important that the president of the United States wants to win the conflicts and bring the troops home. That should always be the goal. We sh the goal should be that we don't do this again, that we've accomplished our mission and we leave. So I do support that kind of framing, and I think it can be a good basis for a discussion of what are the requirements, actually, to end this conflict so that we can come home and not do this again. My concern stems from the fact that, first, ISIS is not defeated, which is why, actually, the president did agree to prolong the deployment of U.S. troops to this region. ISIS still has territorial control, and I think I have a map here. We can start perhaps with this one. So this is um, a map we created at the Institute for the Study of War in December 2017, so it's about six months out of date in terms of the attack patterns, but it still gives you a, a useful overall heuristic for where ISIS stands um, now. So the, the spot of black in southeastern Syria near that Iraqi border is a zone of ISIS territorial control inside of Syria that ISIS actually has been able to hang on to despite counter-ISIS operations. And there's another one just farther north near that town labeled Shadadi. Now, one of the reasons why the U.S. was unable to finish counter-ISIS operations is, of course, because our dear NATO ally, Turkey, conducted a ground incursion into northwestern Syria in that yellow area with sort of the stripes through it in order to fight the American local partner, the Syrian Kurdish YPG. This had a significant effect on counter-ISIS operations and actually is one of the reasons why the operations are not done and the president was required actually to decide um, whether and ultimately to retain U.S. forces inside of Syria. The Turkish incursion um, is something we can get into and would be I would be happy to discuss it. The effect that it had was to compel our local partner, the YPG, to shift military forces away from the counter-ISIS fight and towards fighting the Turks. Um, it actually was thousands of YPG forces that abandoned that fight and went to go focus on fighting the Turks. That had serious <coughs> implications, of course, to include we didn't have enough ground forces then really to take the fight to ISIS and clear that remaining terrain, but it also affected our ability to conduct airstrikes against ISIS because our air campaign inside of Syria is dependent in part on the use of that local partner, the YPG, actually to coordinate the air power um, for the U.S. Air Force and the, and the coalition forces contributing to the anti-ISIS mission. So that stalled counter-ISIS operations. It also gave ISIS a little breathing room to regroup. Um, however, I do not think that even after we clear that remaining splotch of black, which is sort of gray on this map, we will have defeated ISIS. And that's because, to return to this map, ISIS does actually still have forces across Iraq and Syria. They've gone to ground. They are no longer holding terrain, but that does not mean that they do not have military capabilities. ISIS actually recognized, even before the fall of Mosul, that it could not hold on to all of the cities that it had gained, in large part due to the fact that ISIS did not have a sufficient strategy to cope with the overwhelming effect of precision coalition air power, which really has been decisive on this battlefield. So ISIS did make a last stand inside of Mosul um, that was both epic and horrific, 
They fought for every single square inch. They imposed as high of a cost on the opposing forces as they possibly could. But they ultimately did recognize that they couldn't hold on to this terrain. And so they fought similarly in Raqqa City, which was their capital city inside of Syria, um, but not quite to the same (coughs) scale. And after those two cities fell, we actually saw decisions from ISIS to simply retreat and surrender in remaining cities that they held in Iraq and Syria in order to preserve capability for future use. So this is interpreted by some as a sign that the coalition broke the back of ISIS and they sort of just, you know, retreated out of weakness. I think that that is probably true in some cases on tactical levels. However, ISIS is a professional military organization. They remain a professional military organization despite the high-level leaders that we have killed on the battlefield and that they've lost in the fighting. They made a strategic decision to preserve capabilities, and we've already started to see the so-called post-ISIS insurgency for which ISIS was preparing when they decided to withdraw from cities and go to ground. So the sort of brownish-pinkish color on this map are the areas that we assess to be ISIS support zones, areas that they do not control, but they do operate. Um, They can conduct recruitment, logistics, administrative operations, et cetera, in these zones. And what we've seen over the past six months, and you can see the early signs of it on this December map, is a resurgent campaign with a couple objectives. ISIS is targeting, actually, particularly Iranian proxies within the Popular Mobilization Forces, the Shia paramilitary forces that mobilized in 2014 to augment the failing Iraqi security forces. ISIS is in part targeting Iranian proxies within the PMF because ISIS is attempting to, of course, inflame sectarian tensions, which is always an ISIS objective, but they seek to draw out the sense of persecution, again, by the Sunni population and to frame the Iraqi government as essentially an Iranian proxy um, or beholden to Iran on a scale that should not be tolerated. And so they're prioritizing attacking popular mobilization forces. Second, ISIS is inflaming um, and exploiting Arab, um, Arab Kurdish tensions that reached a peak after the Kurdish referendum Um, for independence inside of Iraq late last year, after which Iran's proxy forces launched a very um, effective offensive against Iraqi Kurdistan, capturing the city of Kirkuk, which is in northeastern Iraq. There's a red splotch on it, and really forcing um, a wide-scale retreat of the Kurdish Peshmerga forces. So ISIS is in part attacking the popular mobilization forces in this area in order to further inflame the Kurdish-Arab Um, tensions along the disputed internal boundaries, the areas that the Iraqi Kurdistan claims as rightfully theirs, which of course the government in Baghdad disputes. So what we see is ISIS still conducting operations with intent to create certain effects (coughs) that benefit ISIS in the long term. These are not attacks out of desperation. They are clearly coordinated. We also see uh, assassinations of local governing officials, of leaders within tribal mobilization forces, Sunni forces that rose up to oppose ISIS, and other competitors within the battle space, indicating again that ISIS does still live on, does still have intent and capability to continue the fight, and has at least a theory for how in the near term to continue to degrade the Iraqi state, delegitimize it in order to create an opportunity in the future for ISIS to reclaim terrain. 
as of June, we actually do see some warning uh, or some dangerous signs that ISIS is getting close, potentially, to attempt either a new land grab or to be positioned to do so at a time of their choosing. The indicators for this kind of resurgence in Iraq are the creation of fake checkpoints where ISIS poses as the Iraqi security forces so that they can execute or extort um, either or both civilians and ISF and, and popular mobilization forces going through those checkpoints, um, extortion of local populations, um, abu other abuses of local populations, forcing them um, to pay taxes, et cetera. And we see that kind of activity, particularly in the area around Kirkuk, um, where ISIS, again, is exploiting those tensions between the Arab and Kurdish forces, which is both local tensions in terms of the communities clashing, but it is also a... Um, ISIS is exploiting basically a security gap created by the fact that the popular mobilization and the Peshmerga are worried about each other, that they perhaps are spending less actual focus on combating the ISIS residual threat in that area. We have seen a number of ISIS clearing operations in places like Kirkuk that ISIS has survived, in part because they have an extensive tunnel network, and in part also because they are blending into the population and leveraging their support network in order to ev evade detection. I'm going into the signs of the ISIS resurgence at length because I think it's really important that we recognize that ISIS's territorial control is not actually its only source of strength, and taking the cities back doesn't actually necessarily mean that we have won the war. And in the case of both Iraq and Syria, my concern is that we have executed a very military-focused campaign and have not conducted the kind of supporting diplomatic and political efforts that were necessary in order to remove the original conditions that gave rise to ISIS to begin with. In Iraq, those original conditions included a predatory Shia government in Baghdad that purged and persecuted Sunnis within the Iraqi security forces, which triggered a Sunni protest movement in 2013, which ISIS then was able to exploit in order to resurge. The campaign against ISIS hasn't addressed any of these problems. And in fact, since we've been so single-mindedly focused against ISIS in both Iraq and Syria, we ignored the proliferation of Iran's proxies and the buildup of Iranian influence in Iraq, which actually is going to reinforce those original problems that gave rise to ISIS. So this is why the one-thing-at-a-time approach that the Obama administration took and that the Trump administration is actually continuing is not an effective strategy, either to defeat ISIS or, of course, to secure wider American interests in the region, to include simply ending these wars um, and the violence and the humanitarian considerations that emerge from that. In Syria, the likelihood of us addressing the core grievances that gave rise to ISIS are even more bleak. Um, I don't think that the international diplomatic process to attempt to reach a negotiated settlement of the war has any life left in large part because Assad has never actually intended to negotiate. Assad doesn't think that he is in a civil war. And he recently gave an interview to the Russia Today um, news outlet, a Kremlin-backed um, paper, in which he explicitly denies that what he is facing is a civil war. He has stated from day one and maintains the position that this is a jihadist, Western-funded, um, uprising against him, that it is not legitimate, that the Syrian people do support him, and that he therefore does not need to negotiate with anybody. There's nobody with whom to negotiate. It's important to keep that in mind because I think the international community is so desperate for an end to this conflict and so eager to find a diplomatic solution 
so that a military, you know, military operations are not necessary in order to end this conflict, that we've really, really overlooked what would be necessary to compel this regime to negotiate. And that was true even before the significant involvement of the Russians and the increasing involvement of the Iranians on the ground. Now, the Assad regime is in many ways dependent on Iran and Russia for military support. Before Russia intervened, the Iranian support alone was not actually sufficient to prevent the armed opposition supported by al-Qaeda from taking a major provincial capital, Idlib, which is in the northwestern section of this map. I'll flip back to this one because it's very busy, but I think it's a little more helpful. Um, took Idlib in this yellow zone and actually was storming the coastline. We had grad rocket fire landing on Assad's hometown of Kardaha, and we had al-Qaeda and other elements of the opposition mobilizing for a campaign along the coast. The Russians were able to block that and reverse the momentum. So Assad does very much require the military support that Russia provides, and he does also continue to require the proxy forces that Iran is generating to fight on Assad's behalf. Now, those proxy forces don't get as much attention in the West as I think that they should, because ISIS is not the only force on this battlefield that is mobilizing tens of thousands of foreign fighters to fight for a war outside of their own um, home countries. The Iranians are also mobilizing tens and thousands of Shia foreign fighters from Lebanon, but all the way out to Afghanistan and Pakistan, where they're mobilizing um, Shia populations. There's a, a proxy unit called Liwa Fatimiyun, the Fatimiyun brigades, that is fighting on Assad's behalf inside of Syria. So the actual Syrian aspect of this civil war is increasingly diminishing. And I think that's important to keep in mind when we discuss the possibility that this can be resolved at the negotiating table. Syrians have been lost. And in part, that is because Assad's strategy has been, first and foremost, to destroy the elements of the opposition that were willing to negotiate with him, to deny opportunities to the West to support his overthrow, but also to make sure that he is never in a position where there is somebody with whom to negotiate. So as extremists have taken over the war effort on both sides, ISIS and al-Qaeda, al-Qaeda much more than ISIS, on the side of the anti-regime actors, Iranian-provided foreign fighters on the ground on behalf of the regime, an international settlement to this war, or a negotiated settlement of this war, actually becomes much, much, much more difficult. Most local Syrian actors actually will demand a withdrawal of all foreign forces from Syria as part of a negotiated settlement of the war, and it's, it's incredibly difficult to imagine how on earth that would actually happen because the, the spots on this map that are actually controlled by Syrians is incredibly small. That's true, by the way, for our local partner, the YPG as well, which does mobilize foreign fighters. Um, there's a lack of good estimates for how many Kurdish um, foreign fighters are inside of Syria or other fighters that are supporting the YPG for ideological reasons. But all sides of this conflict have decided to internationalize their fight in order to keep fighting. The U.S. policy towards a civil war doesn't really reconcile with this reality. We still say that we want to ne a, a negotiated settlement and, and we'll say that we want to pivot from counter-ISIS operations to resolving the war. In theory, that's a good approach. However, we've lost sight of what is actually necessary to set the conditions conducive for a negotiated settlement. And with that, I saw a hand, so I'm happy to take a question.
you know, what's your assessment? Uh, Assad obviously talked about Assad's strategy. Russia obviously has a long-term and long-standing interest in the region with maintaining a warm water port. Um, to what extent is Assad conducting his own strategy, and what extent is he a puppet for Russian government in your assessment? Excellent question. And this, I think, is one of actually the pivotal analytical questions in Syria at this time. Assad is dependent on the Russians and the Iranians for military support, but that does not actually make him a proxy. And he does decide to act against the wishes of the Russians and or the Iranians at times in order to preserve his independence and because he refuses actually to be subordinate. And this is one of the defining characteristics actually of the Syrian civil war in my view is that there is a tendency for external actors to assume that the Syrians that they are backing will follow their orders. When in fact, actually, most Syrian groups on the ground refuse to be controlled in that way. And we see this playing out with the Russians trying to get Assad, for example, to support a Russian diplomatic process um, where the Russians late last year held a big summit in Sochi um, in an attempt to reach their own negotiated settlement of the war athwart the Geneva process. The Russian approach was to keep Assad in power by creating some kind of sham diplomatic settlement that seemed to resolve you know, some key issues within the war, but really kept Assad in power. And Assad wouldn't even go along with that because he refuses to negotiate, this is not a civil war. And he also refuses to be fully subordinate to Putin. So there's a very delicate balancing act that is happening inside of Syria. And I do think it is worthwhile to consider whether and how the US might exploit fissures within this coalition but there's a lot of over-optimism, in my view, in Washington, based on the assumption that because there are fissures, we inherently can exploit them. And the existence of fissures doesn't actually mean that we are postured or able to meaningfully drive these actors apart. Because at the end of the day, they argue, they jockey for power <coughs> with each other, etc. But they all have fundamental interests at stake in the survival of the Assad regime. Um, his, his control over certain parts of Syria. And the areas where they all disagree is actually mostly on the margins. The question of whether Assad needs a sham diplomatic settlement to satisfy the West, that's actually a marginal issue in the war. It looks like a big deal when we're so focused on the question of negotiated settlements, but it's actually marginal. And this kind of dynamic plays out, is actually playing out right now in southeastern Syria, or southwestern Syria rather, in Dara province, where the Assad regime is signaling that they may conduct a major military operation next. Now, the latest pitch from the Russians has been that the Russians are going to make sure that the Iranians withdraw from the south in order to pacify the Israelis and in order to pacify the United States, which is worried about a further, Russian build, or further Iranian buildup in the south. Now, Russians lie. They have made this statement before. And I think it's important to keep in mind that the Russians actually depend, again, on the Iranians for the Russian positions in Syria. So they can argue on the margins, and the Russians can try to get the Iranians to cool their jets a bit in the south, maybe to withdraw from some tactical positions and hand those positions over to Syrian proxies of the Iranian Revolutionary Guards Corps. Right? So this is sort of a, a game that they play. But the, the Russians can't secure their air and naval base on the coast without the Iranians because Assad can't secure those bases without the Iranians. A similar thing is happening with the backers of the opposition in the south. 
the Jordanians actually seem to want a return of the regime because they want the border secure, they want never to have to take in any more Syrian refugees, and they want to be able to resume trade and commerce with Syria uh, for economic reasons. And so the Jordanians are heavily messaging that they will get the local Syrian opposition groups to accept a return of the regime. They're going to make sure that the local Syrian groups accept local reconciliation deals where the regime returns so no big fight is necessary, there will be no more refugees, etc. Well, what we've started to see from rebel groups that do depend on the Jordanians for humanitarian aid and other forms of support say, absolutely not, we're not agreeing to these deals. And so this is actually the game that happens inside of Syria. And so I think it's an excellent question, um, not just with respect to the regime, the Russians and the Iranians, but also with respect to other opposition groups and their backers as well. Yeah, Follow uh, up? Yeah. You, you talked about growing that Iranian influence in the region. Can you talk about his return and his objectives inside Iraq? Yeah. So this is a um, chart that we made earlier this week. Uh, which lists the major um, electoral lists that won in the Iraqi elections and their number of seats. So the Tord Reform Party is the party of Muqtada al-Sadr, which won the most seats within parliament, 54 seats, but followed very closely and essentially neck and neck by the Conquest Alliance, led by Badr organization leader, the Iranian proxy organization, the Badr organization leader, Hadi al-Amri, which won 47 seats which is incredibly, incredibly close. Our guy in Baghdad, which is how Washington likes to refer to him, um, Prime Minister Abadi won 42 seats. He came in third after Muqtada Sadr and Iranian proxies. Um, So a a pretty negative outcome from the perspective of the U.S. guy winning, although, you know, there is potentially an opportunity here in the fact that Sutter won the most and not the Iranians, right? The Iranian proxies winning the most seats would have been the worst possible outcome in this, in this election. And it, there is some negotiating room to be had with Sutter, despite his past involvement, of course, in um, sectarianism inside of Iraq and um, attacks against U.S. and coalition forces. He is still nationalist. He did campaign on you know issues of reform and a technocratic government, et cetera. And so there's potentially room to maneuver with this election outcome. However, since the United States is not prioritizing the political situation inside of Iraq because we're so military-focused, limited on the counter-ISIS fight, we're being outmaneuvered. So what this um, screen shows is an emerging coalition between Sutter and Omri to form a government during which a body is basically on the sidelines. So what we have actually is Sutter linking up with the Iranian proxies in order to reach the minimum number of seats that he needs in order to form a government and choose the next prime minister, which is 165 seats. So what this shows is the Black Diamonds are the actual pledged alliance, Sutter and Omri. Um, The sort of hollow um, diamonds here are folks that have pledged to Sutter. We need to see whether Alawi and another Shia cleric named Amar al-Hakim will remain with Sutter, even now that Sutter has linked up with the Iranian proxies. We do think, actually, that they will, but we want to make sure so we haven't colored them black. Um, and then Kurdish parties, actually. And what we've seen is the two largest um, Kurdish parties, the Kurd- Kurdistan Democratic Party and the Patriotic Union of Kurdistan, express that they are willing 
um, to work with the new Sutter Amory Alliance, as has Noriel Maliki. Is that Barzani? Former Iraqi Prime Minister, yep. Really? Yep, the younger Barzani. So what we have right now is Sutter within striking distance of a coalition that will form a government in which a body is marginal, um, as and um, Ayat Alawi may actually also be marginal. He's a secular guy that is potentially acceptable to the U.S. in some respects, but is not playing a dominant role inside this new alliance. And so what we have is the Iranian proxies consolidating in the Iraqi government. The reason the details of all of that are important <coughs> is because the fact that Sutter and Amri are so basically tied within the parliament actually is constraining for Sutter because the Iranians have proxies within the other electoral lists. So the Iranian influence is maximized in this conquest alliance, which is negotiating directly with Sutter. But the Iranians also have sort of embedded proxies in these other lists that they can leverage within parliament, again, to constrain Sutter, to outmaneuver him, and to make sure that the ultimate formation of the government and the assignment of um, representatives to you know the, the different ministries favors Iran. We need to care about this because this is actually the subordination of the Iraqi government to Iran in some respects. Now, we don't want to be too alarmist about that. Obviously, there is still room to compete. The U.S. should still be putting constraints on how much the Iranians can do within Iraq. For example, we've exempted the Iraqis historically from secondary sanctions on Iran. We don't necessarily need to do that. There are constraints the U.S. could put into place to make sure that, like, Hadi al-Amri is not the prime minister of Iraq. But in some respects, we're, those kinds of options are too late. These guys are already in government. They're legitimate now. And part of their agenda is to force the withdrawal of U.S. and coalition forces from Iraq. They already submitted, even before the election, a bill to parliament to require the Iraqi prime minister to set a timeline on the withdrawal of foreign forces, making it a given that foreign forces have to withdraw. Um, and it's actually highly likely that emerging from this government, government formation process will be extraordinary political pressure on the coalition to withdraw from Iraq. And we're there by the invitation of the Iraqi government. And so we're actually in a very real crisis because ISIS is resurging, as I mentioned, and we have a government forming, forming that is hostile to the United States and seeks our immediate ejection from the region. We also have a government forming in Iraq that is comprised of these Iranian proxies that, by the way, are fighting a war inside of Syria. So we now have Iraqi government resources, legitimacy, and institutions being used to mobilize fighters to fight on behalf of the Assad regime against the Syrian population, but also against U.S. forces inside of Syria. And what we're seeing now is the Russians, the Iranians, and the Assad regime, to include the Iranian Iraqi proxies, which are deployed in southeastern Syria, signaling that they will take U.S.-held areas, um, areas held by the YPG and the Syrian um, Democratic Forces, this purple swatch of terrain, that they will take this by force if the Syrian Democratic Forces refuses to negotiate with the regime. <coughs> and I think we're actually about to get outmaneuvered in Syria as well because the YPG and the wider Syrian Democratic Forces umbrella within which the YPG dominates is actually not counter-Assad and has never been. 
There are some Arab forces in it that have historically been counter-Assad, but the YPG has never fought Assad. In fact, part of how the YPG formed is because the Assad regime ceded them oil fields and provided them, we think, weapons and ammunition so that they could mobilize, so that the YPG could secure terrain that the regime didn't need to worry about, so that the regime could go focus on killing the opposition. So what I think is likely to happen is a deal between the regime and the SDF, where the SDF agrees to recognize the legitimate authority of the Syrian government in Damascus and agrees to some kind of federalism structure or some subordination um, to the regime with relative autonomy in their areas. And if that happens and they order us out, are we going to stay? And what we actually see is the regime, the Russians, and the Iranians gearing up militarily to put military pressure on the SDF in order to compel them to make this decision. So that's affecting the SDF calculus. But the other thing affecting the SDF calculus is actually that Turkish incursion we talked about, where the Turks invaded northwestern Syria and are now occupying parts of northwestern Syria. And the U.S. did nothing to stop it. Now, this was a sort of blind, not a blind spot because it was known, but it was a, a known gap in U.S. policy inside of Syria that we were building this Kurdish force that the Turks hated, but we were going to try to square the difference because we needed to fight ISIS, and Turkey's a NATO ally, and so theoretically we can work this out. That has been the U.S. approach. The Turkish Prime Minister Erdogan, soon to be sort of neo-dictator Erdogan, when he wins, I mean rigs, I mean wins this election coming up, um, <laughs> Is, is campaigning in part on a counter-Kurdish platform, um, but also regards the creation of a YPG armed force on his border as a fundamental threat to his national security because he regards the YPG as a wing of the PKK, which is the Kurdish insurgency that has been fighting a decades-long fight against the Turkish government. And he's not wrong. The YPG basically is the Syrian wing of the PKK. And it is led by Kurdish leaders that view Syria as an important rear area and staging ground and support base for a future war against Turkey. So he intervened to take matters into his own hands, and the YPG is pissed because we let it happen. We're in an uh, impossible spot, really, when it comes to this conflict, and so we're trying to de-escalate it. But the YPG, I think, is now increasingly wondering whether it actually is in their best interest to be partnered with us if instead they could partner with Assad and, hey, Assad might actually help them fight the Turks, whereas we won't. And we've started to see signs from senior leaders within the Syrian Democratic Forces, which, again, the YPG leads, saying that, you know, they, they, are, they have been betrayed by the United States, which let the Turks intervene, and that they think that their future may actually lie with Assad. So I think we're going to be outmaneuvered, which means 12 to 18 months from now, we actually could potentially see a full U.S. withdrawal from this region or at least a very big crisis point where we have to decide, are, what are we going to do about the fact that Iranian proxies are ordering us out and we lost our only significant local partner in eastern Syria with the YPG? All of this actually was predictable because there was no reason we needed to wage the counter-ISIS fight the way that we did. We did not need to be so dependent on the YPG. We didn't need to push them into Arab areas which is part of what pissed the Turks off and pissed everybody else off and also led to this over-empowering of the YPG. 
we did that because we were so hyper-focused tactically on the fight against ISIS. Now, there are good reasons for that. ISIS is horrific. ISIS was leveraging the cities that it controlled to include Manbij, which is the current hotspot that the Turks are coming after us. It's not on this map, um, but it's in northwestern Syria. Um, Manbij was used as a base for ISIS to conduct attacks into Europe um, and elsewhere. Raqqa was used as a base to conduct attacks into Europe. So there's very real considerations for why we would need to defeat ISIS fast. But it is not sufficient just to do that without actually taking steps to mitigate and to create opportunities for what will follow from ISIS. We've, we've been fighting this military fight really hard and fast, and we got to the end of it, and we looked up, and we said, holy crap. Everybody else was prepared for the end of the ISIS fight. The Turks attacked the YPG. The Iranian proxies attacked the Kurds in Iraq. Everybody else had been taking time during the anti-ISIS fight to prepare for the wars that would come after ISIS. Because everybody else in the region recognized that only more wars would follow from the counter-ISIS fight. We haven't been prepared for that, so we're getting outmaneuvered. Which is, again, one of the reasons why the seemingly very significant tectonic shifts from this administration with respect to policy, the JCPOA decision, chemical weapons strikes, isn't actually anywhere near sufficient to adjust the momentum of these systems. So I hope I actually answered your question. I know I pivoted a bit back towards Syria. So the contours of the, that negotiation are still sort of unclear from what we can see from the public reporting. Um, I think it's actually unlikely, though. I mean, the KDP has been so um, defeated sort of strategically after the referendum and due to their full sort of collapse and retreat under the pressure from the Iranian proxies and the Iraqi government. Um, and they actually, the, the Patriotic Union of Kurdistan is the opposing Kurdish force, um, not opposing, but the competitive Kurdish force um, in Iraqi Kurdistan, and they actually did much better than expected in competing against the KDP in this election. The conspiracy theory that I think likely has some merit to it, given the widespread allegations of voter fraud that have occurred and seemingly um, legitimate reports of ballot stuffing, et cetera, that happened across Iraq, but especially in Iraqi Kurdistan, it does seem like what may have happened is the PUK which was in control of that city of Kirkuk that I mentioned that the Iranian proxies stormed, that the PUK agreed to withdraw from Kirkuk, which at the time was reported in October of 2017 when this whole escalation, it was reported that the PUK had basically cut a deal with the Iranians to withdraw um, with the Quds Force leader Qasem Soleimani in return for Iranian support in winning big in the next election which does seem to have happened because the PUK did win big in the next election. So the balance of power in Iraqi Kurdistan actually is in flux. It's kind of always in flux, but it's especially in flux right now. And that means we actually have to re-baseline what all the negotiations are between all the various parties because it's fundamentally a new condition. Um, and that's, assessment, that's an assessment we're still working through now. Yeah. Other questions? Yeah. Did you say that SDF and Assad are talking or are they um, both. And are the Russians and the Iranians involved with speaking to the SDF? So in terms of the, so what has recently happened, and then I'll give you the historic context. What has recently happened is the SDF put out a statement and said, we are willing to hold unconditional talks with the Assad regime. 
Historically, the SDF has insisted on certain preconditions in a negotiation, that they get federalism, et cetera, et cetera. They have now offered unconditional talks. That follows a delegation of what we call regime-tolerated opposition figures within Damascus <coughs> that aren't really opposition figures. They've never participated in the armed rebellion. They're part of the Assad regime's sort of coalition. That delegation, though, went to Kamishli City in northeastern Syria um, to meet with local SDF officials there. And afterwards, the SDF made this public statement. So I think it's likely that there's a lot of back-channeling that has been happening. What I don't know is in this particular discussion what kind of a brokering role the Russians may be playing. But the Russians have been cultivating relationships with the YPG over a significant period of time to include inviting them to diplomatic processes that they've never been invited to before, such as the Russian-backed Astana process, um, in an effort to curry favor with the YPG and provide them the option to ditch the Americans and join the Assad regime. So, other questions, thoughts? Yeah. Jennifer, this is absolutely superb. But a couple of things. Uh, one, as you think about this in the broadest perspective, uh, Iran is a centerpiece, uh, obviously, in keeping the Assad regime in power and increasingly looking as though it's uh, possibly going to be gaining uh, a very dominant control of Iraq itself, uh, not to mention what's happening in Yemen and Iran and other areas. Uh, is the, if there's any key to this whole thing, is it Iran? And uh, how, do, how do we deal with that? It's an excellent question. So I think the priority for moving forward does need to be the U.S. has to consolidate the influence and leverage we do have and avoid this dangerous possibility that I'm referencing that we're basically going to get kicked out of the region. We can still head that off, I think, but we have to start acting now. We have to get the YPG and the SDF under control. Frankly, we should break the existing relationships between the SDF and the regime to include oil sales, et cetera. There's no reason we should be tolerating that kind of business. Um, and I do think that we can and should take steps to redline certain kinds of Iranian consolidation within the Iraqi government. That has to happen first. The next phase, though, I do think needs to focus on constraining and reducing Iran's buildup throughout the region. But I, I worry about a sort of American pivot from, okay, we did ISIS, now we're going to do Iran. And that's it. Because I think it can lead us actually to overlook the incredible interconnectedness of all of these issues and to miss nexus opportunities to accomplish goals against multiple problems simultaneously. So in my view, the Syrian opposition that was moderate and willing to negotiate with Assad was a partner that offered us many good outcomes or many good opportunities for outcomes that we need because the moderate opposition inside of Syria is the biggest enemy of both al-Qaeda and ISIS and the Iranians and the Assad regime and sort of the Russians. So there are opportunities in this theater indirectly to gain significant leverage over a multitude of actors simultaneously. And it's that kind of approach that I think we need to start taking in this region. We need to focus on what conditions we seek to achieve, achieve those conditions, and not necessarily take an actor-focused approach, if that makes sense. 
But I do think that there are still significant things we can do, again, to constrain the Iranians. For example, the U.S. has a base right here that's called Tenef. It's sort of a dusty outpost where apparently a few American special operators are holding down a fort um, with a local partnered force. And it's in proximity to, to supply routes through the Syrian desert that the Iranians and their proxies are using. We're not doing anything to contest that. And in fact, we're letting the Iranians occasionally attack us and frame us as the aggressor. And the Russians are now demanding that we withdraw from that region as part of a deal for southern Syria to avoid that escalation I talked about. We should definitely hang on to that. I think we actually should reinforce it. And I think we should start constraining Iran's ability to militarily reinforce both of these theaters. Iran also uses civilian um, aircraft to fly military reinforcements to include troops inside of Syria. We could be disrupting that. So I think that there's, there, is a, there is some low-hanging fruit that we actually can take to start imposing costs and causing um, headaches for the Iranians um, and everybody else in the region, quite frankly. This administration is applying some serious economic sanctions on Assad um, in addition to imposing the sanctions on Iran, and I do think that that's important because it gains additional leverage, it constrains them further. But what we need is a strategy that integrates these kinds of steps and these kinds of tools to a vision for how we get to where we need to be from where we are. And that, in my view, has been the consistent glaring omission in U.S. strategy, where even this administration has good big ideas. We're going to defeat ISIS. We're going to defeat al-Qaeda. We're going to negotiate an end to this war. We're going to hold Assad accountable for his crimes. Those are all very, we're going to deny Iran its dreams of, of building a you know, Shia crescent. Those are all fine, big ideas, but there's a lack of actual connective tissue between what we do on the ground tactically and how we get to those large-scale outcomes. And it's that sort of middle echelon that I think is really critical for us to develop. Again, I hope I answered your question. Okay, great, yeah. Do you think the um, change to John Bolton and the National Security Council will make a difference here? Listen I mean, have any views on that? It's difficult to read the tea leaves you know, of this administration. I, so I hesitate to do that or to try to read um, the president's mind. But I do think um, we've seen a shift. We have seen a shift in focus in some respects as John Bolton came in and, and H.R. McMaster left to, you know, a conclusion of the counter-ISIS sort of phase of the administration's focus. And now we're in a new phase, which is the big North Korean focus um, and the Iranian focus. In some respects, personnel changes like that can simply reflect a change in prioritization, right? We're going to go in this different direction. Um, but I think the key question, in my view, actually, now is what kind of relationship um, and positive discussion John Bolton can and will establish with the Pentagon. Um, which actually has been playing an interesting role in a lot of this, because Secretary Mattis has, in some ways, actually been a dampener on more aggressive U.S. action in this region, where he has taken pains, for example, to say after the chemical strike, after the U.S. response to the chemical strike, when President Trump was saying, you know, we may hold Assad's backers accountable, this may be a major force or major show of force, we're not going to be deterred. Secretary Mattis got out there and said, this was a one-off strike. We have no intent to get involved in the Syrian civil war. We have no intent, you know, actually to take action against Assad. We're just here to fight ISIS. So he's sending out these strategic signals, actually, that in some ways seem to conflict with what the president is saying and what the White House is saying. And so I don't know what's happening there, but I'm hopeful that perhaps 
um, the new set of folks can can resolve this and, and get to a footing where we're not just responding to every new catastrophe, but we're actually taking positive action. Um, John Bolton obviously, you know, has publicly stated um, his position, which is rather hawkish on the Iranians. Um, again, what I hope is just that that translates into concrete strategies for how to create effects in time and space, rather than these kind of feel-good strategies where we just do a bunch of stuff because it feels good to impose pain on the Iranians, um, but that doesn't actually create necessarily a clear and achievable path to an outcome in time and space that we can live with. So I know I'm not entirely answering that question, but I am outside the administration, so the inner workings of it are beyond me. Yeah. Uh, question. Do you feel that it is an early call for by the United States uh, when there was a race to declare that we have defeated the ISIS? Like Putin went to the Syrian air base and declared that we have defeated the ISIS and the Iraqi, mm -hmm. IS, Iraq also defeated. But in that situation, isn't it uh, an early kind of a rumor or the news was coming uh, there was a, a ceasefire between uh, U.S. forces and ceasefire kind of situation at Eucrates uh, that we will not attack this part of the region and you will not attack at this part of the region across the Eucrates River I'm talking about. And that has caused an, a limited amount of uh, ambiguity in the Syrian Democratic Forces as well as in the ISF that U.S. is, is withdrawing its uh, special forces. and. Certain news were also in uh, media at that time that U.S. is thinking of its deployment of special forces. Uh, that's one aspect. And secondly, uh, what's your views about the spread of ISIS in Afghanistan? Because mm. the kind of attacks are happening in Kabul since January 2018 till today. Especially the uh, Shia mosques are targeted in Kabul. So the spread has cross the limit from Iraq and Syria to Afghanistan or is widening further? Yeah, absolutely. So to the first question, um, both Putin and Prime Minister Abadi declared victory over ISIS for domestic political reasons because they both intended to win in elections with hopefully far less cheating on Abadi's part than on uh, Putin's part, but there were domestic you know, reasons to declare that. Um, I don't think that the U.S. should have been messaging that ISIS is largely defeated, and I'm not even sure we should have been okay with a body messaging that, because it's just not true. We took the big cities, we accomplished some big goals, they were very hard fought, that all should be praised. Every life that we lost in that fight should be honored to include all of the civilians that died and those that ISIS executed. But Yep, absolutely. Um, and I, I think it's premature because, look, we've seen this movie before. We've literally seen this movie before, and ISIS is researching this map. These hotspots, especially in and around Baghdad, which I know is very small on this map, um, but those are all the historic 2006 AQI, Al-Qaeda in Iraq strongholds, that where we now see insurgent activity even after the defeat of ISIS. So we've seen this movie before. I don't know why we're being so naive about this. So, was there a, a Euphrates River component to that question with the deconfliction? Uh, that was an operational uh, 
again it was mentioned uh, in the tweet itself by the command that it is an understanding, tactical understanding between say uh, US Special Forces operating yeah. and the Russian uh, Armed Forces about Delineation of their limits of uh, airstrike. Yeah, and y that obviously constrained our counter ISIS operations because we basically drew a line at the river. <coughs> um, and because the regime is actually not very good at fighting ISIS. And in fact, there was just a big ISIS counterattack in the town of Abu Kamal, which is located in southeastern Syria near the Iraqi border there, near that big splotch of red and black, uh, that was rather successful. Because the Assad regime can advance when the Russians sort of just bomb everything to the ground and ISIS chooses not to fight. But the ability to hold terrain over time against a continued insurgency, that the regime doesn't do well. Um, so when ISIS morphs back into this kind of insurgency, actually the coalition approach to say, okay, we'll expect the regime to take care of ISIS in their part and we'll take care of ISIS in our part, is based on very bad assumptions about what the regime actually is capable of. Even if I get past the notion that it's in our interest for Assad to be brutalizing these populations again, um, which I'm personally not willing to get past, but it, you know, there are all sorts of cognitive problems with this approach. Um, Afghanistan, yeah, so ISIS is not dead and gone in Iraq and Syria, and it also is still quite active globally. Um, the big areas where we continue to see ISIS activity and growing momentum actually are in Afghanistan, where we do have a highly capable ISIS affiliate um, that is active in a number of different areas in eastern Afghanistan, but also in northwestern Afghanistan, where we have numerous indications that ISIS is actually attracting foreign fighters and potentially rebuilding an external operations node inside of Afghanistan to conduct attacks abroad. Um, we have reports of French foreign fighters for example, coming um, in other Europeans, not just sort of regional Central Asian foreign fighters. And we have an aggressive ISIS attack campaign against Shia minorities across, you know, at different locations across Afghanistan, but increasingly in Kabul. Um, and we're working right now actually at ISW on an assessment of how ISIS is generating that attack capability in Kabul. Um, there are some indications that the Haqqani network actually is facilitating the ISIS attacks in Kabul. Um, which I would believe, um, but we're taking a look at that now. And so if anybody's interested in follow-up on that, I'm happy to give you um, my card, and we can follow up when we get that assessment and, and put that out. The other areas where ISIS is surging, so it's, I, Ramadan just ended, um, of course, and there's always a large ISIS surge during Ramadan um, of attacks because that's how ISIS marks religious holy months. Um, and what we actually saw this year was a surge in attacks in Indonesia, which means the ISIS capability in Southeast Asia is actually still strong, despite the major fight that ISIS actually lost with um, in the Philippines with the, the seizure of the town of Marawi. So they've they've they're surging now in Indonesia, and I think that's a, an important area to watch. They're attempting um, to gain traction in Kashmir, um, but they also have now called ISIS has called for hijra for immigration of foreign fighters to Yemen, which is new. And we see ISIS doubling down in Somalia and in Libya and other parts of North Africa, um, likely exploiting the new foreign fighter flows or a redirection of ISIS capabilities to those areas of opportunity while they um, regroup and reset inside of Iraq and Syria. So, yeah. Do you think that Israel understands that we're being out And have they, are they communicating? 
I think we're the only ones that don't seem to know we're being outmaneuvered inside of Syria. So, yeah, I wager the Israelis have figured that out. Um, the Israelis actually have taken a much more aggressive um, position in the last few months. They had been conducting limited airstrikes to disrupt um, transfer of high-end weapons to Hezbollah in Lebanon through Syria. But last year, um, that attack or that airstrikes campaign um, both expanded and then accelerated. The Israelis struck a Syrian chemical weapons facility, for example, way up near the Syrian coast. Um, let's see. Let's do this map. Way up near the Syrian coast. So if you see this cluster around Hama, um, there's a there's a um, chemical weapons facility to the west of that that the Israelis seem to have struck. Um, and they've increased their tempo of strikes against IRGC positions and Iranian proxies um, in an attempt, I think, to degrade some of the most dangerous Iranian buildup inside of Syria that did directly threaten Israel um, and to deter the Iranians from conducting additional escalations against the Israelis because the Iranians have, have taken a couple pot shots um, to include sending an armed drone into the Golan, um, and the Israelis responded very decisively. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, what Yeah. What I think is interesting and a little problematic is look, the the problem with respect to the Trump administration in Syria, if I had to boil it down, is that we seem to just want to make Syria Russia's problem. And I think it's easy to forget with the tweets that come out and the concern over this president that he's actually quite isolationist. He doesn't want to be, from what we could, he doesn't want to be here. So he's inclined to make this Russia's problem, um, writ large. Defeat ISIS, go home, let Russia deal with the pieces. Um, why everybody seems to forget about al-Qaeda, by the way, is the thing that actually astonishes me, because all of this yellow terrain is actually permissive to al-Qaeda, and al-Qaeda has over 10,000, possibly even 20,000, nobody knows for sure, fighters inside of Syria with intent to use Syria to conduct attacks abroad in the future. So we're just completely, by the way, overlooking that. But by making Syria Russia's problem, um, Trump actually has in reinforced a Israeli position that I think is problematic, which is to believe that we can meaningfully split the Russians from the Iranians. Now, there are good reasons for this position from the Israeli vantage point, which is that the Russians aren't shooting down Israeli aircraft that are striking the Iranians. So from the Israeli perspective, there's enough space there for them to operate. And so it makes sense, actually, for them to have this, okay, you know, detente with the Russians and, and go um, take the opportunity to strike the Iranians. But that's a very limited space, and it's a product most... Uh, mostly of the fact that the Russians are in a coalition with the Iranians, but the Russians don't really have interest in, in a big war against Israel. That's not something that they... So so long as that big war with Israel doesn't actually come and the Iranians don't try to force that, I think that that space is actually relatively limited and it gives Netanyahu enough space to do his airstrikes, but it doesn't address the bigger questions of the overall Syrian civil war, the overall Iranian support to the Assad regime, the infiltration of Iranian proxies into the regime's institutions, etc. So I actually think it's problematic that we're reinforcing this tendency to just want to make Russia solve it. Yeah, and then... Jennifer, uh, what, what, if any, is the political 
political strategy to prevent uh, Iraq from totally falling under Iranian control and simultaneously hopefully dealing with the uh, Sunni issues that, that contribute to both uh, ISIL and Al-Qaeda? Well, I would love to know. There does not seem to be one. The approach we seem to have taken, um, so we did precious little in the lead up to the election to shape things. Um, there is a bill in Congress now to designate two of the most lethal Iranian proxies that are now in the Iraqi government as uh, terrorist organizations, which I think would be good. These are organizations that have killed U.S. troops in the past and engaged in all sorts of extrajudicial killing. Um, but it's a little too late for that. It would have been good to do that ahead of the election to send the signal that, hey, you know, these guys are not actually good actors. But, you know, it's better than nothing. Um, so that's one approach that is being implemented. But from what we can tell, the um, special envoy for the anti-ISIS coalition, Brett McGurk, and the U.S. ambassador in Iraq have engaged in a series of meetings, you know, after the election. Um, they seem to have focused on trying to cohere Iraqi Kurdistan into a united bloc so that it can return to Baghdad in an effort to continue the U.S. somewhat guilty conscience effort to repair the relationship between Baghdad and Iraqi Kurdistan after we sat on the sidelines when the Iranian proxies invaded Iraqi Kurdistan. So we're, we're trying to repair some of that. Um, but I think it, again, is too late and also isn't necessarily a coherent enough approach to deny the Iranian play because denying the Iranian play doesn't seem to be our goal. So we're not really pursuing it. Um, and we've actually seen a series of meetings with Brett McGurk um, I think, but definitely the um, U.S. ambassador to Iraq and Hadi Al-Amri and other Iranian proxy leaders for reasons that I do not understand. So we seem actually just to be tolerating this. Yep, yep, and then I think there, and yeah, that's high. Yeah. So um, I'll just uh, work at CENTCOM, so I'll just offer a couple, couple of Please. One is that I think we've had a long-term uh, counter-Iranian from day one that the Iranian presence has been known and there's been a, a detente um, and, a, and a counter under other separate authorities where the U.S. is aware of and taking ongoing and persistent measures to mitigate that um, from Iran under counter-ITN authorities mm -hmm. um, that exist out there. That's been there um, from the beginning. So that's always been there. It's in the back. You don't see it necessarily. And it's uh, the limitations and authorities and kind of where we're at and phase conflict and, and those types of things. Mm -hmm. That's always been persistent there. If you go back to some of the open source stuff, you'll see early on that there was actually bases where U.S. and Iraqi forces were co-located. Mm -hmm. um, so if you go back early on, you'll see there's or U.S. and Iranian forces were co-located. So uh, Kuts forces, other um, negotiations that go on. So that that's always been there. I think that is a piece that's just not very transparent to most folks. Mm -hmm. um, number one. Um, number two is um, U.S. has never had a policy of overthrowing the regime. Uh, uh, the Assad regime. So if you look at the pre-chemical weapons strike uh, when uh, President Obama was going to do that, we got within uh, minutes or hours of uh, uh, U.S. action. We didn't do that. Um, there has been no policy. So there is no long-term military um, end state where we were ever going to have a, a persistent military presence in Syria mm -hmm. in any way, shape, or form. So that has always limited the national policy with how we're going to be able to respond to that. And whether that's good or bad, don't know. But 
it's always limited what we're doing and, and particularly to the points you referenced what we're going to do here for the industry. Um, outmaneuver, I think, you know, potentially yes, but I would go back and I would offer that when you look at what outmaneuver means is we never wanted Syria. And we've always, of course, quietly, as you mentioned, the Geneva process worked very, uh, very closely with uh, Special Envoy McGurk and others and all the other regional partners uh, to try and come up with political settlements short of conflict so that we could address um, those things. And that, that, of course, is that, you know, the real engine that's behind everything, the military just being the, the tool that's implementing and buying the time space to do that. I think you'll see through Secretary Mattis and through uh, Sec State and uh, Mr. Sullivan and, and others now, Ms. Uh, Secretary Pompeo, that we've always wanted the political settlement there, and we've spent a lot of time space to get to your SDF comment to preserve that alliance for the time being. But uh, one of the other comments I would offer is everybody in that part of the world talks to everybody. Mm -hmm. um, to stay alive, you need to do that. And so you talk to everybody all the time. We talk to the Russians. We talk to we talk to everybody you need to talk to to make sure that you don't have unintended consequences. And somebody who's got to live there at the end of the day, um, who's not going to be supported by a long-term U.S. presence, um, needs to survive. So I think from a U.S. perspective, um, we are keenly aware of that. And, and it, of course, is a recognition that people want to stay alive. So you gotta you got to make friends with whoever's going to help you. Um, to the point down the little yellow area on the Tenth, yep. Uh, that's actually the Entente garrison. So that is a critical area there because you've got Tower 22, which is a huge IDP camp for the Jordanians. Uh, you can pick which side of the border you think it's on there. But the U.S. has... The Jordanians have an answer for that, I think. Yes. Sorry. Um, the U.S. Uh, has uh, strongly uh, protected that with partners and kept others out. You'll see, if you go back and look at the papers, you'll see that there was a number of engagements with both Russian and Iranian and uh, Syrian um, forces where the U.S. exerted self-defense and shot down aircraft that were a mm -hmm. threat to U.S. positions there and they continue to hold that position there. That's a key place because it's the, high, the number one highway to Damascus, so it allows the Iranians to create a landlock there. And so that continues to be a, a pressure point that is exerted in there. Um, I, would, I would echo your comment. I think one of the key strategic pieces um, when partners started to evaluate the, the re-consideration uh, uh, re, uh, of who's on whose side was when the uh, referendum, when Barzani uh, mm. pushed the referendum forward, um, absent a lot of encouragement from a lot of people, um, won the referendum, and then we supported al-Badi with respect to his assertion of sovereignty of Iraq. And it, so while there was uh, some PMF forces there, I would say that at least another, the, the primary forces, at least outside of Kirk, were ISF. And so when they went back up to and try and get the um, Kurds to go back to the original line um, pre-conflict, um, that was al-Badi. So again, key decision in the United States, and it plays out in Afrin as well, is to respect for sovereignty and you know state actors. Thank you for your comments. Um, I'll say just two things um, in response, and I know we have other questions. Um, I agree that the policy has never been to overthrow Assad. Um, I think the argument I am attempting to make is that a Geneva an approach to the Geneva process that does not impose military pressure on Assad will fail. And that accepting a return of the Assad regime's authority to these areas, um, the reconquest of Syria, if you will, actually will drive further insurgency and therefore is not in our interest, either from the perspective of the counter-ISIS fight 
or from the perspective of defeating al-Qaeda in northwestern Syria, which of course is postured as the preeminent counter-Assad force inside of Syria. So I don't think it's acceptable from a national level policy perspective for us to have framed our operations in this way and constrained our involvement in this way. After which I think all of these problems that we've outlined, you know, follows. And so there's a fundamental national level uh, decision I think that was made incorrectly. Um, I would I would only quibble with the Kirkuk thing um, because we did take a close look at the available evidence from open sources about what forces actually moved into Kirkuk. Um, it did include the counterterrorism services and some elements of the ISF to include the Ninth Armored Division, but there was actually a very significant involvement of the proxy forces. Absolutely. For that, for that city in particular, but there was a whole, as you know, yeah, there was a wider, thing. yeah, the, the, the jewel right there. But yeah. Absolutely. And so I think the, the only, um, Footnote I want to add to that is just that while we sh can and should support Iraqi sovereignty, if the sovereign Iraqi prime minister is relying on Iranian proxies to provide military force to accomplish his goals, then how sovereign is he? And I just think that that's a, a continued concern that, that we perhaps do share. And, and to your, your comment about the uh, U.S. efforts here. So, again, from almost day one, we've had a phased approach. It's a multi-year almost a decade out, mm -hmm. um, which is post-conflict, regardless of whoever's elected. And that, there are some encouraging signs with respect to uh, Mokhtar al-Sadr and his engagement with the U.S. Again, you don't read a lot about that. You don't yep. necessarily see that. Not something he's going to run, run around and, and talk about. So yep. there's always been a long-term uh, plan or a, a working relationship to try and establish what a coalition, whether it's NATO, whether it's U.S., mm -hmm. whatever flavor that would be to... Um, provide enough internal stability uh, and security for the Iraqis to be able to finish off the elements that you addressed earlier. But I, I think that was, it's always been planned for, it's always been considered, um, but again, it's how do you how do you reconcile that, whether it's a body um, that stays there, um, how, how many U.S. folks, if any, is it not too many, um, same thing for, uh, we're still working that same type of issue. Absolutely. Thank you. I think we had a question over here. Yeah. To achieve kind of the, your strategic goal or end state, are you saying that we would need to increase military operations, have a, like, a, a greater number of like, troops on the ground, or is that not part of the process to get to your strategic end state? That's a good question. So I, what I'm arguing is that first and foremost, we need a fundamental shift in how we define our interests in this theater and then how we therefore craft a strategy to achieve those interests. Um, I am making the argument that a return of Assad will not produce security in the region or an acceptable outcome from the perspective of American national security. Now there's a lot of people that disagree with that. Um, I think that, or I assess that for a number of reasons. Among them, he's a war criminal. Um, Second, in order actually to suppress a new rebellion, he would actually need to reach a level of repression that's even higher than what he was able to do in 2011. And he's nowhere near. The regime is in shambles. They don't have that kind of institution. They will rebuild that if we give them 20 years to do that, and I'm sure the Russians will help them. But it's, I, I don't know why we would wait that long and let that happen if it's not actually going to produce an outcome that's in our interest. So that's first. Um, the second is I actually think we do need to deny Iranian buildup 
and the you know the creation of this sort of security architecture across the region that the Iranians are trying to build. And third, I do think we actually need to ask some very hard questions about how okay we are with the Russian air and naval bases on the Eastern Mediterranean. Now, that doesn't mean we should go get into a shooting war with the Russians. That's not what I'm saying. But among the simulations that we actually are running at ISW are simulations that play this clock forward and ask, how are the Russians going to force project from their bases in Iraq and Syria, which they've started to do, sending some contractors and stuff to, I think, Congo recently, um, and leveraging the Syrian bases to, to project outward. And one of the scenarios we actually just recently gamed in London, as was mentioned, is the possibility that the Russians and the Iranians will make a play to hold all three trade choke points in the Middle East, Suez Canal, Bab el-Mendeb, and Strait of Hormuz, at risk in order to extract some kind of concessions from the U.S. and the West to include potentially lifting of sanctions. Those are very real, I think, possibilities that we need to prepare for. And so the question of Syria is about much more than Syria, in my view, because this is an international conflict. So to get to your actual question about what does that then mean for U.S. strategy and troops committed, yeah, I do think it would likely involve a higher U.S. commitment. We actually would have to put the thought into what the strategy would be, what the phases would be, what we seek to accomplish in time and space before you know, it's, it's worthwhile to talk about numbers. But my, my primary thesis here is that this issue is not going away. If we withdraw, I think we're going to be back. And it's just a matter of time, in my view. It's a question of how bad things get and in what way before we're forced to return. And I want to avoid doing this again. I want to do this once and get out and stay out. So that's, that's my approach. Cool. I have no idea whether I'm over time. No, you have until 12 o'clock. I have 10 more minutes. Excellent. More questions. Yes. Sorry. Thank you for waiting. Yeah, yeah. No problem. Uh, when it comes to the U.S. administration's approach you mentioned above, uh, do you think it is a right, uh, right approach by the uh, minister, uh, especially when you are equally uh, reminding <coughs> the NATO allies in a harsh way in a Munich security conference that you need to pick up your financial contribution and literally he went up to the level that 4% and only three countries are participating in that and rest nobody is picking up and then uh, this that it was also uh, reasserted again in national security strategy that allies need to do their bit mm -hmm. uh, so in such complex situation uh, do you feel it is a right decision by the administration it's a good question. I haven't honestly taken as close of a look at the sort of NATO wrangling that's been happening, um, but I do find it, as a general rule, problematic to be alienating allies at a time when we face such serious national security threats um, to include in this region, but also you know the Russians resurgent elsewhere and the Chinese, et cetera, and the North Korean issue. So I do think that some of the you know, negative rhetoric that really is inflaming this kind of renegotiation is particularly harmful. There probably is space to have a proper and constructive negotiation with, with respect to contributions to NATO, et cetera. That's not the way that this is going, and I find that problematic. It's almost an issue um, in some respects of execution and the way that we're treating our allies, you know, rather than an issue of whether we can have that discussion, in my view. Yeah, and then, yeah. In 18 months, what do you assess to be the most likely scenario that we're seeing on the ground and then the worst case scenario? They might be the same. 
<laughs> I think we're going to be out in 18 months. If I were a betting woman, I'd say we're not in this theater anymore. I don't know if we're in Afghanistan either, by the way. I'd welcome thoughts on that. But I think that Assad will have secured a deal with the SDF. I think that's happening. Um, I agree that these talks happen all the time. Um, I just think my instinct on this, having watched it closely, is that it's, this is going to go in the way of that. Um, but I don't think that the war ends in 18 months, so I think we have a continued al-Qaeda insurgency. So the space between the most likely and the most dangerous for me is in part a question of how badly do, do things deteriorate and how fast. So I think we could, for example, on the dangerous side of things, have al-Qaeda relaunch external operations into Europe. We have some early indicators of that to include increasing signs of al-Qaeda operatives in Germany and within the, the refugee population in Europe, which has been an ongoing line of effort for al-Qaeda ISS, but seems to be gaining um, some additional traction. And we have al-Qaeda reorganizing in Syria in a way that could indicate they intend to resume external operations. So I'd say that's on the most dangerous side of the spectrum, um, as is the possibility that al-Qaeda and or ISIS are able to wage a, a very successful campaign of, of suicide attacks behind front lines in a way that forces the regime to contract um, and just you know further inflames the violence in this conflict and protracts the war, I think. So that's kind of on the most dangerous side of the spectrum. Um, most dangerous side, we also have to, of course, discuss the risk that the Russians and or the Iranians escalate against U.S. forces in the east. Again, there are some warning signs in Iranian IRGC proxy force, um, Liwa Bakr, which is a Syrian tribal unit, has openly declared jihad against U.S. forces, and we have some early indications that the regime and the Iranians are trying hard to reach out to the tribes to potentially create an opportunity to do an insurgency in the east. Um, we also have mysterious IEDs that have started happening, like one north of Raqqa City um, that targeted, um, that occurred near a, a, a reported U.S.-French soft base. That could be a warning shot. We don't know. Um, so I think the most dangerous side of this is could actually be that the SDF doesn't cut a deal with the regime and its friends, and instead the regime, the Russians, and the Iranians decide to escalate against us in an effort to compel us to withdraw by imposing casualties um, and framing this as a, you know, why is the U.S. fighting the sovereign Assad regime, um, which I think is a, a spin and a narrative approach that the Russians will take even if we're not trying to fight the sovereign Assad regime. So I think that's on the most dangerous side. Um, most likely side in Iraq, I think that this insurgency will simmer. I'm hopeful that it will not reach a boil and that our the continued coalition and NATO support to the ISF can ensure that these pockets don't actually become full-blown um, insurgency and we don't see a return to the kind of sustained vehicle-borne IED campaign that we saw in 2013 that led to ISIS. The most dangerous side would, of course, be that the ISIS is able to achieve some kind of breakthrough momentum in Iraq to, to accelerate that further. Um, the only other thing for most dangerous that I would mention is, of course, the enduring risk that the Israelis and the Iranians enter into the next big Israeli war, um, which I think everybody is rightly worried about. Um, the Iranians seem to have accepted the losses that the Israelis have imposed recently, but it remains to be seen um, whether the Iranians will decide to engage. And so I think I'd put that on the most dangerous side of the spectrum. Yep. And then... I'm going to turn this to individuals, cool. local officials, judges, individuals uh, attempting to exercise 
their independent judgment with regard to decision making processes. If you could speak to what our original goal was, perhaps maybe democratization of Iraq, and then now from what you're saying, perhaps just having any sort of government that's functioning up there. Uh, I'm speaking to this question for you in particular because of a terrorist attack which occurred in 2016 outside of Kedah against the local bar association president mm -hmm. with a hospital IED which killed essentially all the lawyers in, in the community mm -hmm. uh, thereafter. So, Do you recall, was that TTP, was that Taliban or ISIS? It was I don't remember. initially claimed as Al-Qaeda or TTP. Okay. 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 So I'm sorry. What's the question? The question is whether or not uh, local officials are functioning at all in Iraq with regard to being able to exercise independent judgment in their decision-making processes. From your perspective, are they threatened? Do they? Are they? Yeah. Yeah, so I, I welcome comments from my CENCOM colleague, but what I'll start by saying is just the rehabilitation of local communities is a coalition focus um, for the stabilization piece of this. Now, it does seem that it is not happening on the scale or with the kind of speed that we would perhaps hope. So folks are returning to their homes, but their homes are destroyed and laden with IEDs, and the IED clearing isn't happening as quickly as it should, et cetera. But I know that there is an effort to invest in the rehabilitation of these local communities. Now, I do think that the Iranians are also investing in competing at that local level um, in that kind of space. So I do think we need to watch the upcoming um, provincial elections in Iraq very closely to see whether and how they try to posture to, to access that sort of sector of society. Um, but it is also the case that ISIS is targeting local officials, in particular in those disputed areas, um, and then down into Diyala, um, but also out in Anbar as well, in an effort to deny the rehabilitation of these communities. Um, which I think is part of the ISIS campaign uh, goal set at this time, to deny the rehabilitation, to keep people living in these conditions, to discredit the Iraqi government, and thereby create conditions for a future insurgency. I think you have time for one last question. Mark, I would say very quickly, I, I think that there's optimism with respect to the rule of law. Um, just last week, they had Iraqi folks, uh, senior legal advisors here at the FUSE Symposium, regular attendees of a lot of conferences now, what you don't see is that there's a lot of uh, detainees, um, ISIS members, both local and foreign fighters, and so the local systems is are working through this, are working to get families reintegrated. So I, at least for me, from my perspective, from what we see, that there is a basis there where they're trying to process it and bring the country back together. So a good sense of nationalism. I think you probably have all the issues she spotted there as people competing for uh, you know, power and the structure there, but at least right now as they're going through it, it seems to be healthy or consistent when we have uh, allegations against particular units for uh, war crimes or other types of things um, up to the you know, prime minister level all the way down folks look at it directly and they seem to be trying to comport with their international obligations the only the only follow-up i would say to that is i i haven't investigated this personally but i do know that the most recent inspector general report on operation inherent resolve stated that the that Prime Minister Abadi has made no significant progress in holding anyone accountable for extrajudicial killings, torture, et cetera. Um, so there are some actual dangerous signs that there's activity, but not progress with respect to actually holding um, that standard. So. One last question? Somebody that hasn't asked one. Sorry. Yeah. 
Ben, what's your assessment of uh, the stability of the Iranian regime with, I think, two-thirds of their population is what we would call it? Yeah, this is a great question. I'm not actually a domestic Iran expert, so I'm afraid I can't speak to it in terribly much depth, which is good because I only have two minutes anyway. Um, but the administration does seem to have set the goal of destabilizing the Iranian regime and causing potentially a regime collapse. Um, the reason I find this concerning is because, of course, it becomes Pandora's ba box when a regime collapses. We see that in Syria. Um, but also, the requirement actually for a rebellion to succeed, which we also see in Syria, is that the regime loses the will to continue to use violence against the population. The Assad regime obviously has not lost the will, and I'm not actually sure that it ever will, nor do I think that the Iranian regime will lose the will to suppress this with violence. So my concern is that what we would be leading to is actually just an another failed um, state another vicious civil war or vicious, you know, set of violence um, that doesn't actually lead to a good productive outcome. Um, so that's my concern. But again, I'm not a, an Iran expert. I just have watched rebellions more closely than I perhaps thought I would in this life. So.